he knows and sometimes he uses such events to catch our attention and to, to draw our attention away from the visible into the invisible to teach us some sweet truth about himself or to lovingly warn us away from the danger that we were headed towards. I start by saying this because as I, as I first read the psalm that we just read, and as I was studying it, there seemed to be something strange about it. Some way in which it was constructed and laid out, which seemed to be contrary to natural reasoning and opposite of how I would have ex expected it. This, I would suggest, should make us stop and pause and to look closer at the psalm and see what is it that the Lord is trying to draw our attention towards by writing this psalm in such a unique way. So let me first ask for the Lord's help in doing us, and then we'll get to the task before us. Father God, you have given us this blessed word, your word. This psalm written so long ago by a man of God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. We want to hear what you have said, Lord. We want to see what you have done with eyes of faith. We want to learn what you have, want to teach us. We want to do what you have commanded us. We want to love as you have loved us. By your word and by your spirit, show us how we are to live today and every day with every act of our hand, every word of our mouth, and every thought of our mind. May you instruct us, Lord, in the ways of true wisdom, the way of peace, the way of joy and of blessing. And may we learn to have greater faith in you, greater hope in you, and greater love for you. It is in the name of your blessed Son, I pray. Amen. So what's strange about this psalm? Well, it, it appears that the psalm was written completely backwards. Look at where the psalmist starts. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Then look where he ends. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. He starts by saying God has heard and has delivered and ends with saying that God is the needed source of deliverance, which has not yet come. He begins with patience, it seems, and finishes with a plea that God is not to delay any longer. I would have expected this the other way around. Typically, both in the Psalms and in our own prayers, the pattern is to start with the pr pressing in of the dark ailments and the subsequent call then for the plea for light and then the sky, though still dark, begins to lighten just a touch on the horizon with the assurance that the deliverance of the dawn is coming. And then there's the actual bursting forth of the sun rays of deliverance, which sweep over the land, chasing away every last wisp of night, replacing them with the dancing colors of praise, clothing the whole scene in a glorious display of his beauty and majesty. But this psalm, but in, in this psalm, that deliverance is mentioned first. Then the assurance then the darkness in the plea. Almost as if the dawn was happening in reverse and it was actually the night that was pressing back in against the day. So what does the Lord intend by giving us the psalm written in this pattern? Well, I've titled this message, The Faithful Prayer of Deliverance, because that's what it is. It is very apparent that it is a prayer for the whole passage is soaked in prayerful language and of, of er, inquiry, inquiries of the Lord. It is likewise easy to see why it's a prayer of deliverance and mercy and salvation and cries for help resound through the passage as if a horn blasts through the mountains. But where does the faith aspect come from? 
And without getting too far ahead of myself, that is what I suggest we will actually see when we consider why the psalm is written in reverse. But first we need to look at what the psalm as a whole is saying, and then we can see in brighter light what the structure adds to that. You see, the psalm is more than just a plea. Though it is just that, and we dare not forget it, but with the, within the plea, there is a lesson. A lesson firstly taught to the psalmist by the Holy Spirit, but also a lesson to us by the gracious work of the Spirit and in inspiring it in, in its writing in Holy Scripture, given to the whole church that we all may learn. This lesson inside the prayer, I would summarize as being mercy upheld by love. Let's then turn to the passage and see how this is displayed and why it is within this prayer of deliverance. The psalm seems to fall in three main sections, mirroring those of which I described earlier in the analogy of the dawn, but which I would summarize as calling them remembrance, reason, and then the request. And then verse 17 at the end is a summary of all that's come before, and we'll look at that at the end. So this first section in which David remembers the past and draws conclusions from it. It begins in the past tense. Look at the first verse again. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He starts his plea with a recollection back to previous times when he had waited for the Lord, casting his mind back to a period in which he was in anticipation of something which had not yet, something that he desired, but he did not yet have. We all know what this feels like and what it looks like, and we tend not to like it. You can just think of the massive corporations that have flourished because they can reduce the amount of time that you have to wait, promising that you get your shipment in two days as long as you still pay the fee. But though waiting is uncomfortable, think not that it is only tied to covetousness. For there is a holy and righteous waiting that we can think of and that we know. It's the discomfort that we yet have here on earth because we cannot yet see with unveiled eyes the face of our Savior. We are waiting eagerly for his coming. There is a gap there between what we have and what we desire. And this gap is not a place in which we find rest. And that's by design. This unfulfilled longing of our hearts constantly arouses us from slumber and keeps us looking towards that eternal city with sure foundations that our heart desires so we do not fall asleep here. And so would seem to be the nature of waiting here where the psalmist remembers himself once being in. Note well too though what is being waited for. It is the Lord. It is the Lord that the psalmist is waiting for. This is a man who loves God and who is waiting for him. Look at where the psalmist was, too. He was in a place that he described as a pit of destruction and a miry bog. A place that you can see is impossible to leave. A place which is going to result in his undoing. A place where he is surrounded by filth and decay which clings to him and holds him down inside of it so he could not escape. No wonder he's crying out. But the wonder is that what happens as a result of his cries. Oh, that the Father stoops down from heaven to hear the cry of the psalmist. You do know that in Psalm 113, it describes the Lord as needing to look down even to see the things in heaven. How much further must he look down to see the things on earth? That such a worm as a man should have the creator perking up his ears, 
focusing in on the words of a being made from dust. Why should the eternal listen to one who will soon no longer be here? Why should the unchangeable listen to the one who will soon change his mind? Why should the majestic listen to the one who cannot demand his attention? Why should the omniscient listen to the one who knows not what he asks for? Why should the Alpha and the Omega listen to the one who cannot see the whole picture and is but a speck of dust upon it? Why should the thrice holy listen to the one who cannot honor him as he deserves? These are questions which do not have good answers from a human perspective. Logically, it doesn't make sense that God would listen to such a man. Don't be fooled, that is the description of every man, every woman, and every child. Yet he does not merely passively hear the cries of the psalmist, but he inclines his ear to listen closely. He stoops down to catch every word, every timber of the voice in the cry, as if to hear completely what is asked and to know intimately and entirely the heart and the desire of the one who is asking it. And he responded He acted based upon the cries and the pitiful whimpers of this man. There are three things that the Lord did for him here. Three things which David is calling to mind to remind himself of the completeness of the Lord's deliverance. First thing the Lord does is raise him out of the trouble from which David is crying. He lifts him out of the place of destruction and filth and rescues him from the trouble and the danger which were about to destroy him. This is often what we find ourselves asking for when we are in that pit himself. Lord, will you bring us out of it? And for sure, the Lord does listen. Remember, David is writing about this in the past tense. The Lord has already drawn him out. David is looking back upon this. No longer is a current plea. It's an accomplished reality. God listened. God rescued. But the Lord goes further than this. And he did much more than just draw David out. He delivers David out of the trouble and then he establishes him. He puts him in a firm place where he will not sink again. And he lays out a path no longer upon miry clay, but now upon stone so that he will not sink again. The Lord is not doing the bare minimum here. He has heard the cries of his child in distress. And now that he has pulled him out of the bog and wiped away the mud, he wants to set the child on good ground, on a solid foundation, and on a way where he will not fall again into that place where danger and sorrow rule. So first he rescued, then he established. But the third thing that David remembers is that he gave a new song. The heart of the Lord seen here is not merely one which seeks to keep you from dying once, or even that you should ever keep from falling in the pit again, but it is one which even goes further than that and seeks to establish you that you may have joy that you should have singing and gladness and jubilee. He takes away the old mire and gives in its place ecstatic cheerfulness and praise. His goal is not merely to keep, barely keep you from dying, but that you may have life and have it abundantly. He does not merely save to a neutrality, but he saves to a glorious joy. This is a wonder, and it sets apart the salvation of our Lord from every other false salvation. It is a joy that comes from knowing and praising and admiring and honoring the one who so tenderly listened to you and gave you so much grace and mercy in saving you. But in this song and in this salvation, it does not merely affect David alone. 
No, but he goes on to say, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Many will be able to see the salvation given to God's children, and this should give them fear. Fear that if they are not also lifted out of the pit of destruction, they shall not get out. Fear that the Lord may not hear their cry. But seeing the completeness and the surety and the joy which the Lord, which comes with the Lord's salvation, they then are determined that they must try. They must press in and they will then put their trust in the Lord, assuring that their cries will indeed be heard just as David's were. And then considering and remembering all this which the Lord has surprisingly done to him in the past, David draws this conclusion. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. First, this confirms to us that the man who waits patiently, whose trust is in the Lord, that is the one who is blessed and who experiences the salvation just described. And what does it look like to make the Lord your trust? It is common in Hebrew poetry and in the Psalms to repeat an idea in multiple different ways using different words. And this is to add beauty and color and understanding. And that is what we have here as well. To have the Lord as your trust means you do not turn to the proud. A commanding consideration in a month in which the priests of secularism decree that we should celebrate that very thing. But the attitude is more general than that and, expands it and express itself elsewhere too. There are many who would confidently tell you that their product will solve your problem or their method of positive thinking will make you happy. That the only thing wrong with you was how you didn't have a high enough opinion of yourself to start. They have their gurus and their seminars and their training sessions and their accountability groups, and they promise you that they will make your life great and they can do it without God. And they're prideful. It would be like if you were stuck in the proverbial pit in destruction and there's a man in the pit with you. And he claims that if you come to him, he's going to lower a rope and pull you out of the pit. But there's a problem here. And that problem is that he's still in the very same pit himself. How is he going to get you out? He may be wearing fancy shoes and a nice suit. He may have a convincing argument. And he may be very confident that if you honor him, he can get you out. But in reality, his plight is just as severe as yours. Salvation comes only by the hand of God. You cannot escape it through confidence or pride, either in yourself or in others. So do not turn to the proud for deliverance. They give off false promises and false hope. But the proud are marked by another characteristic. They go astray after a lie. This is, of course, obvious if you realize that God is truth. So if you're not following God, then whatever it is you're following must be a lie. And there are plenty of those to go around these days. There are lies that God does not exist. There are lies that God is only love and that love is what man defines it to be. There are lies that God does not discipline his children. There are lies that God is not all powerful. There are lies that God is not in control. Lies that this product or that thing or this expression of your identity will bring you happiness. Lies that traveling or experiences or a career or family or friendships will complete you. There are lies that you define what is true. There are lies that you define morality for yourself. There are lies that the world is mostly good. There are lies that there is no good thing in the world. The list can go on and on and on, but identify them. Identify the lies which seek to lure you towards their own version of salvation and reject them. 
because it is completely apart and separate from the truth, separate from God. Identify them for what they are and go not astray after them, but see and fear and make the Lord your trust and wait for his salvation. But now we find the transition from that first point of remembrance to the second. We see the connection here between remembrance of the results to the reason for it. As he has remembered the wondrous things God has done for him in the past, he begins to remark at the sheer multitude of them. And these are not just any deeds. These are wondrous deeds. How the previous observations of the Lord's beautiful deliverance must be swelling as our minds as we recognize that it is those kinds of wondrous, salvific, establishing, joyous deeds which are being multiplied. Deeds which cannot be matched by any other. And how could we not also see in those deeds, just as David saw, the thoughts and the heart of our God? For just as we have understanding something of a person's thoughts and of their heart by their deeds, so I would argue the Spirit of God shows us glimpses at the heart of God through his deeds. And so also David seems to think, for he does not fail to connect these deeds of God with the thoughts of God. Have you thought about that this week? Do you know how the Lord of hosts thinks of you? Have you seen his wondrous deeds? Do you realize that his deeds accord with his thoughts? Great deeds according to great thoughts. Acts of great love flow with thoughts of great love. As we observed his tender listening at the beginning, think also of the tender heart of our Lord in his response and deliverance. Nothing can compare. No one even has the capability to come close to match the weight, the size, the quantity, the plurality, the magnitude, the depth, the quality, the height, the length, the breadth, the power, or any other dimension of the thoughts and love that the Lord has for his people. So unique are they because he is so unique. But I will have to agree with David here. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. My fear here is that I'm so inadequate at communicating this. I cannot grasp the weight of this myself, let alone tell it to you. I'm trying to describe the colors and the beauty of the most vivid, awe-inspiring double rainbow you've ever seen in your life, but the only words that can come to mind would be the same words that you could use to describe the finger painting of a toddler. So I would ask you instead to dwell upon it to read of it in scripture, to meditate on it, yet even tonight before your head hits the pillow, I will try to communicate the incommunicable, but it must be the Spirit who knows the thoughts of the Lord, who makes some measure of them known to you. And my hope, my prayer is that the Spirit will lead you to where you can see that majestic double rainbow for yourself. For it is truly ineffable. So now let me press in on after the psalmist as he too strives to put into some words, some measure of this beauty and of the tender, loving, compassionate thoughts which the Lord has for his people. In describing the reason why the love of God is so bountiful towards us, but first he needs to make sure we know what the reason is not. In sacrifices and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. We need to recognize something. 
Sacrifices and offerings are not the reason God's thoughts and deeds towards us are so many and so precious. That's not where his delight lies. He doesn't save because he relishes repentant tears. He doesn't save because he needs our prayers or our goats or our offerings or our work. He doesn't save because he needs some subservient army of humans to do his bidding. He could have just as easily let us all perish by our own devices, and he would have been none the worse off. Sometimes people get this wrong. They think holding back their devotion to God will harm him or spite him in some way. But they have it all backwards. No one has ever been saved by sacrifices because the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient to take away sin. And thank the Lord that this is the the way. How many bulls and goats would it take to save a man? By this system, how many times would a man need to be re-cleansed from his sin? How far do you think an Israelite ever made it out of the temple after giving a sacrifice before he committed another sin and needed to be cleansed again? The salvation we need is a salvation much more permanent than this, or else the world would have long ago run out of goats and no one could be saved. But the Lord has given an open ear. What an interesting choice of phrases to pair together in this statement. Instead of taking delight in sacrifice and offerings, the Lord has given an open ear. We need to ask ourselves then, what is it that these ears hear? Burnt offering and sin offering the Lord God has not required. Now, what is the meaning of this? Is there no necessary punishment for sin then? Are all the sacrifices mentioned so repeatedly and detailed throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books, all just some sick joke? Did God change his mind? Is sin really just not that big of a deal after all? And he decided, oh, never mind, just forget about the whole thing. May it never be. But it is still a truth, you see. God never needed the blood of bulls and goats to save people. They never really had any purchase upon swaying God. Let's look at yet the next phrase in the, in the passage, which will kind of help us explain it. The psalmist begins a quote, a quote of himself. Then I said, behold, I have come. Well, who has come? The psalmist? You'll notice that next there is language frequently used to quote the scripture. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I couldn't find what follows in the law. I looked for it. So, but, but was the psalmist written about in the law? No, he wasn't. But there was one written about in the law, one promised, a prophet. A prophet like Moses was. A prophet who would have the law written not on tablets of stone, but on his heart. A prophet who would delight to do God's will. A prophet who we know is Christ. The psalmist here is seems to be quoting himself, retelling to himself that which the Lord had told him directly. The words of our Savior himself, that he is coming to do the Father's will, which has been written upon his heart. This promise the psalmist remembered and rightly understood to mean that the sacrifices and the sin offerings are not required because there is one who is promised to be a mediator of a new covenant and who will do the will of God in saving his people and his coming. And he is coming. This isn't a conclusion I arrived to on my own either because you see, as I was searching the Old Testament to see where this is quoted, I found it in the New Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are offered, continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered in according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. I could hardly believe my eyes when I read that. Of course, of course, that is what the psalmist is writing about. Of course, our Savior would lovingly show himself in the middle of this cry for deliverance. Of course, how could we speak of the length and the breadth and the height and depth of the love of God, which surpasses knowledge without the primary demonstration of that very love, namely Christ coming to do what we never could rescuing us from what sacrifices done according to the law could not save us from, doing away with them and establishing God's will, which sanctifies us and sets us apart, even by the offering of his very own body. Once for all, the cry rings out. It's hard to get much more secure than that. So to return to the partial explanation, a sin offering was required, but it was not the offering of goats but the offering of the singular Lamb of God. This is the only thing effective in bringing about the salvation. Nothing else brings credit or merit. Nothing else can sway God's mind. For the old was done away with and the new was established that he has come to do the Father's will, which has now been accomplished in Christ and only in Christ. No goat, no act, no deed, no church, no speaking in tongues, no sacrifice, no work of penitence, nor of repentance can add to that perfect work. So the sacrifices were not needed and are not needed. But wait a minute, you may say. You mentioned repentance in that list. Isn't the cry of repent and believe the gospel? Well, yes, it is. And it's true. Unless you repent, you will not be saved. But that is because you can say that the Lord is your trust. But if it never leads to any form of repentance, if you never see your sin, have sorrow for your sin, confess that sin, have shame for that sin, hate that sin, and turn away from that sin, then it is not the case that you are trusting in Christ to save you from that sin because you're still in love with that sin. And you don't want to be saved from it at all. You show by your deeds that you are not speaking the truth when you call him your trust, and you're following after a lie. Faith is not genuine faith where it does not water the fertile ground from whence repentance then grows. But nonetheless, this repentance does not, cannot add to Christ's finished work. It is unstable, imperfect, and would only pollute that spotless white robe. It is not a patch to be added, 
but the astonished, mournful cry out for covering when you realize that you're naked. You see then how David is trying to do what he said he will, he will do. He's trying to proclaim of the matchless thoughts and deeds of God, and he's doing it by trying to show the greatest demonstration we have of that in Jesus Christ himself. And the thinking of this then breaks out into the telling of it. Seeing this kind of love, this great deliverance, and this wonderful news leads David to tell of it in the great congregation. He does not hold it back and keep it to himself. Look at verses 9 and 10, where he speaks of this over and over, even as the Lord already knows this. Be assured he's not repeating it for no reason, but adding color and beauty to it where he can by describing the same action in multiple ways. In his retelling of it, we can learn more about it and about the reasons behind it and what our responses to it. He speaks of it first as the glad news of deliverance and what a fitting name that is. The idea that the Lord does not require any of our works or our offerings to save us, but does so solely by his own action is good news indeed. It is deliverance of the sweetest kind. Deliverance which is sure, deliverance which cannot be stolen, deliverance which cannot be corrupted or forsaken or lost. Deliverance which shall hold once and for all. And what would be more fitting to do with glad news than to share it? The Lord has come and he has made a way that all those who trust in him shall be pulled up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay. What tidings could be better to bring and share with others, even with great congregations? But he also brings up to the Lord that he has not restrained his lips. And indeed, with news so glad as this, there are times at which the words seem to be pressing at the back of our lips, pressuring us to release them. The natural course of things would be that they would be let loose and that the words would flow like honey from our lips and our fellows would be blessed by them. But there is a temptation to restrain the lips. This temptation comes in many forms and with many lies, sometimes masquerading as love, other times as social acceptability, and perhaps other times as mere good decorum. But it is usually just this fear of man in all cases. But the Lord knows. He knows if you restrain the words or if you let them tell of his deliverance, and it is to him that you must give an account. He then describes this not speaking also as a hiding an action which is usually done either for something you are ashamed of or something you are afraid to lose. But neither case can be true with this glorious news. It can hardly be seen as shaming to tell of the love which your Savior has for you, for all you do is lift up his name. And as for the loss, though physical objects and secret knowledges can be lost so you no longer enjoy an advantage over others by holding them, it is not so with this good news, for the value of it only increases as it spreads. And you begin to see the power of God, which fights for you, now on, dis on display in others in ways that you didn't see in yourself. And you didn't know were possible, but now that you see it, it bolsters your own faith. So hide not this deliverance. Do not be selfish with it, but show even some sliver of compassion Christ has shown for you by sharing it with others. He then ties another word to, to this, which we have already seen, faithfulness. For indeed, there is more to the act of God in deliverance, which goes beyond a capricious act of love given on a whim one day. This is something which was promised. 
something which at the time of this writing had not yet fully come. This is an example of the Lord remaining true to his covenant. He has promised that this deliverance would come and that he is not a God who changes, but he is a God of faithfulness. Verse 11 then takes what is known about God and his deliverance and draws conclusions from it. Namely, that the Lord will not restrain his mercy because his steadfast, immovable love and faithfulness to that covenant and his promises guarantees and makes safe our future. Mercy then, which is a legal term, meaning the withholding of a, th- of a just thing deserved, is being upheld here by grace, which is unmerited favor. And that unmerited favor is due to the endearing affection which the Lord has for his people that we already saw. Do you see then? Mercy is upheld by love. Mercy is like the pillar which restrains destruction. And steadfast love and faithfulness is the sure immovable stone upon which that mercy rests. It was the love of God within God's heart, which set his will, which gave his grace, which delivered his promise, which sent his son who paid the price so mercy could be dispersed and grace given all the more freely. But now the psalmist enters into the third part, what I would call the request. And he starts with the description of the issue. Evils surround him. And these evils are beyond number. His iniquities have overtaken him. He cannot even see. More plentiful are they than the very hairs of his head. A dim scene indeed. Foes are now closing in on him. They are encamped around him and stretched out for battle before him. Like a besieged city, he is surrounded by a sea of opposing forces, sneering, seething, gnashing their teeth at him and seeking his end. But who are these foes? What is the evil that has amassed itself? Is this Saul as he was pursuing David? Or maybe Absalom? Was this one of David's many enemies or the Philistines? Well, perhaps, but I think only in a secondary sense. No, remember what Hebrew poetry does. It repeats itself. The evils here are described again, and they are described as being his own iniquity. This is a most fearsome foe indeed. Physical foes can be outrun. You can hide from them. You can flee and be away from their presence. But iniquity is something else entirely. No forest can you flee to. No cave can you hide in. No monastery can give you refuge behind its walls from this foe. Wherever you go, it goes. Because iniquity is now part of the sinful nature of your very own human heart. Do not be caught off guard. Sin is an even more present, more fearsome, more destructive, and more deadly an enemy than any person, any circumstance, or any organization could be. It is never far away, and it is never friendly. Though it may show itself appearing as a friend or even some angel garbed in light bringing you good tidings and shiny promises, its end is always destruction. Sin seeks to snatch away your life. It delights in your hurt. It rejoices over your failures. Sin is just as much an enemy as any. And what a way this evil, this iniquity has overtaken David. He cannot even see through the cloud of them. Their numbers are great, even greater than the hairs on top of his head. A man cannot atone for even one sin of his own doing. What then of a multitude of them? 
which block out his sight. Truly, this is the workings of sin and iniquity which overtakes. It is no wonder that he then concludes the thought with, these, with the words, my heart fails me. This is a hopeless picture. There are too many enemies who are too strong for him. He is overcome. He is beaten down, hopeless within himself. His heart has lost its will to fight. So bleak the picture, so apparent the overwhelming power of this foe, and so imminent seems to be his doom. He has realized that there is no salvation within himself. There is no salvation from around him. So he now calls out, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. You can hear the earnestness, the desperation in his voice. But remember, this plea isn't in a vacuum. Remember the foundation he has already reviewed. He started this psalm where he did so that when he reaches this point, he's no longer lost and confused, but he knows where to direct the arrow of his prayer. Remember where his, he remembers where his deliverance came from in the past, and he remembers why it came from there. So he draws up the bow of prayer again, and he aims his plea very specifically at a familiar target, the pleasure of God. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. He has already identified that if he is to be saved at all, it is only because God was pleased to do it. It must be pleasing to God if he is to be saved at all. The Lord must have thoughts towards him of salvation. His love must exist and be abundant towards David if there is to be any hope for him. And so that is where he sends his request and where he sends it with haste. And then he goes into detail of what this deliverance would tangibly look like in his life. Oh, and what a day of rejoicing it would be if the dogs of Satan and our former slave masters are put to shame and completely disappointed. What celebration there would be if sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery were turned back, if hatred and discord were put to shame, if jealousy and rage were completely disappointed, if drunkenness and witchcraft and idolatry were finally appalled because of their own shame. What rejoicing there would be if these enemies would be crushed with finality and they so thoroughly defeated as that. And surely all who seek the Lord will rejoice in that day. Those who love this full and complete salvation of the Lord will rejoice and will be exceedingly glad when he comes on that day, which is quickly approaching, and puts an end once and for all, not only to the punishment of sin, but to the enemy itself. When the people of the Lord shall be rescued from their enemies, what a glorious day that will be, and the shouts shall ring out in heaven for all of eternity, saying, Great is the Lord. And now there is the recap. The final application as the psalmist connects the whole song, song together. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer, do not delay, O oh my God. He is poor and needy. He has a true need which must be met or else he shall perish and he cannot meet them himself. But, and oh, that blessed contrasting word, but the Lord takes thought for him. He does not need to be rich 
because the Lord himself brims with the multiplying, unspeakable, loving thoughts for him. And I didn't mention this yet, but remember the description of how many his sins were? They were beyond number and more than the hairs of his head. But yet, even a number such as that cannot fall into comparison with the loving thoughts and the wondrous deeds which the Lord has for his children. Your sin may be vast, but his love is infinite and beyond measure. Your sin may be the largest thing you have ever seen. His steadfast love and faithfulness cannot be compared, not even to that. So the psalmist realizes and puts his trust in God alone. He alone is his help and deliverer. From nowhere else, from no proud man, from no lie, nowhere will he find this kind of salvation apart from God. And he knows just the kind of thoughts which the Lord has for him. Thoughts of love, thoughts of mercy, thoughts of complete deliverance, and thoughts of faithfulness. So then he now boldly asks, nay, pleads, almost even commands, so confident is he in the Lord that the Lord not delay. Ending on the familiar note that he is his God. So there's the psalm, but I still have an unaddressed question to answer, which I tease at the beginning. Why is this psalm written backwards? He starts with such a, conf- such a confident trust and patience. Why end in such a plea? I hope it's apparent now that it is not because of some kind of backsliding from confidence into doubt, but rather it is because it is showing faith and how faith acts in response to a dire situation. Faith looks back to its object and then applies it. That object with which faith looks back to is the marvelous salvation of the Lord that he has given before. And it looks back even beyond that to the overwhelming magnitude of the wondrous deeds and thoughts and love and faithfulness of the Lord. This is not a blind faith. The Lord has never required blind faith. Our faith has always had a foundation and a resting place. And that is the tender love and compassion and the loving thoughts which our Lord takes for us. We have faith because our God is a loving, faithful God. He will not withhold his mercy from those who trust in him. And my friends, our God hasn't changed. If this was how David found promise for his deliverance, such that he approached God so boldly in verse 17, Surely we can have the same confidence in pleading for our own deliverance because that confidence has nothing to do with how good we've been that day. If we're up to date on our sacrifices, if we have confessed our sins to a priest recently enough, or if we've read our Bible that morning. No, that confidence is based only in the love of God on display towards all those who will dare put their trust in him alone, apart from any man-made forgery or self-prideful attitude. It is the confidence knowing that all we have is the beggar's empty hand of faith. But our Lord has the generosity to give and the Father's love to adopt. So quickly, by way of summary, four ways we saw faith acting in this passage that I would encourage to you. They're all P's because that's the thing to do, I guess. The first one is patience. Have patience in waiting for your God. He does not tarry needlessly, nor out of spite. He is listening to you. His thoughts are tender towards you, and he will deliver you as he has before. 
The second is praise. Remind yourself of this great salvation that is ours and sing his name and in all joy. He has rescued you before and he has done it so that you may have joy in remembering his deliverance. So sing it out. Remind yourself and rejoice in it. Use it also as the psalmist did here to strengthen your faith in the fight against the present evils. The, the third is proclaim. How could I not mention this one when so much of the psalm was dedicated towards the proclaiming out, the speaking out, to not restrain your lips? So tell it. Tell it to yourself. Tell it to your family. Tell it to your friends, your coworkers, to those following after lies, to all who will hear. We have glad news. We have the best news. Tell it to others that they may hear and come in and dine with us. It's a natural consequence of faith and a strengthening consequence of faith. And finally, plead. Pleading with the Lord is not always an act of impatience. It should be, as we saw today, an act of faith and of an act of confidence in the Lord. So bring to him your large requests and the enemies which are over your head and beyond your ability to count. He is a rich and powerful king and he is able to do what you ask and more. He can save you and establish you and give you joy. But plead, knowing that you stand there only on the mercy that has been purchased by the blood, which was a demonstration of his immovable, steadfast love and never-ending, never-corroding faithfulness. Now may the Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Father, you are altogether lovely. Your mercy is beyond measure. Your love so sweet. Your faithfulness so strong. Your deliverance so whole. Your joy so perfect. We, Lord, are poor and we are needy. But you, Lord, take thought for us. The thoughts that you have towards us are beyond compare, beyond our need, beyond our imaginations. So we look to you alone for our deliverance. You alone are our help. Do not delay, O Father, but lift us up out of the pit. It is in your precious and holy name that I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing about our solid rock that we stand upon. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground.